think we've gotta be the body to rock it like we're never gonna see it again. We are exploding, the world is gonna know it. We rock it like you're never gonna see us again. Good evening, everyone. It is 10 p.m. and Pure Gold is live on the air for this Tuesday night, February 28th, 2012. Closing out yet another great month of Pure Gold. Welcome to the show that covers everything and anything and tells it like it is. My name is Joe Bacino, and my tag team partner and co-host, as always, is David Gomez. Sir, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fabulous, sir. What about yourself? Feeling a year older, but I'm doing well. <laughs> well, that, that's always a plus, sir, as you start out. What year is this, by the way? Uh, year 35. Wow, 35. That is amazing. I'm going to be 31 in a couple of months, sir, and I have to admit, I'm definitely, you know, obviously the younger, better-looking member of this group, this tandem. But, you know, aside from that, sir, of course, so we're going to get into your birthday a little bit later on. But from everyone here at Pure Gold, we wish you a very happy birthday and, of course, I know you enjoyed that uh, that wonderful PG exclusive hat that you have, sir. Oh, we will get into all that and all that good stuff a little bit later. But, sir, let's get the show on the road. Let's give out the contact information and introduce our guest. Of course, as always, folks, if you'd like to be a part of the show, the call-in number is 714-364-4721. Once again, 714-364-4721. Amazingly enough, Joe, I've said that number so many times I could spout it off in my sleep. Check out our website, folks, puregoldpg.com, where, of course, you can see all of our uh, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and all that other good stuff. Um, you know, you can check out all of our past interviews and just all the wonderful things we've done this, you know, year plus here at PG. Um, you know, give us your feedback. As always, check out the articles. We have a new article called, uh, excuse me, a new blog, Mind Over Matter, by one of our wonderful guests, Caitlin Wozniak, who was Marilyn Miss 2011. She is all about uh, women's self-esteem, and she is all about dealing with the issues that you know young women, whether they're uh, in the pageant world or just in general, the type of issues that young women deal with, uh, you know, eating disorders, things like that. So she's an advocate for those types of uh, wonderful social causes. So we're honored to have her blogging for us, sir. But of course, we have another uh, wonderful guest that's going to be joining us this evening, and. I have to say, this is a special honor and a privilege for us because, sir, we've had some amazing guests, but we have never had a guest of this magnitude on. And it gives me the privilege and the honor to introduce Miss Christine Brennan, who is not only a sports columnist, not only you know a writer for the USA Today, she's a best-selling author and just a pioneer when it comes to women's sports. Christine, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, it's my pleasure, David Joe. Great to be on with you guys. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, believe me, the pleasure is all ours, and we greatly appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us now. Uh, as I as I covered briefly, uh, you've had an amazing career in sports and in journalism. I mean, there's so many things that awards and things that you've won, but you know, let's start at the beginning, uh, if we could briefly. What exactly was it that got you into sports in the first place? Well, I love playing sports at an early age. I'm tall. I'm almost six feet tall. I'm about 5'11 and a half. And so I was tall uh, as a girl growing up. And this was a time in the 60s and 70s when girls weren't encouraged to love or play sports. But my mom and dad, especially my dad, uh, was uh, was my own personal title nine, even before there was title nine. And uh, so he'd throw the baseball with me in the front yard. And, and I couldn't get enough of that. I couldn't get enough of playing sports with him and then the boys in the neighborhood. Uh, then they went off to play baseball, and I would throw the ball against the wall because, of course, girls weren't allowed to play Little League then. So uh, obviously it's wonderful how things have changed and for, for girls today in sports. But uh, my dad would take me to games, and then my siblings who are younger, uh, University of Toledo football. We grew up in uh, Toledo, Ohio, in the suburbs of Toledo. And then Michigan football, which Ann Arbor is just 45 minutes away. So we do double headers, season tickets for Michigan, season tickets for the University of Toledo, season tickets for the Toledo Mud Hens, Detroit Tigers wow. game, Chicago White Sox, on and on it went. I had a wonderful sports childhood. I keep score of entire seasons of Toledo Mud Hens baseball games off the radio. Um, wow. Not only was probably no 10-year-old girl in America doing that, I dare say very few 10-year-old boys in America were doing that. So <laughs> I was totally into sports, couldn't get enough of it. And I was so fortunate to have a mom and dad uh, who were absolutely supportive of that at a time when most parents were telling their daughters they could not play sports. They could not 
uh, be athletic. They could not uh, care about sports, go play with dolls. My mom and dad were saying, sure, and they would go out and buy me a baseball mitt. So wow. I'm very fortunate to have had that background. Yeah, that's that's definitely an amazing background. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, my mom, my mother is, uh, is uh, you know, a product of the 40s, the mid-40s now where she grew up, uh, you know, they weren't women were not encouraged to like sports, and she loved sports as a kid. They were basically encouraged to take care of the home, you know, uh, cook, clean, all that other stuff, and that was it. That that was what a woman was made for, and that's all she could do. So it's great to see that your parents, you know, were much more progressive and, you know, quite frankly, quite uh, ahead of their time in terms of where society was, of course. Uh, you know, as uh, Joe and I both have uh, young daughters, very young daughters ourselves, uh, you know, we're going to encourage them to do all the things that they like, especially sports, since, of course, we have a little sports talk show here. Now, you mentioned you're originally from Ohio, and uh, you're also in the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame, which is which is amazing. Now, what was that like for you, considering that you're a product of Ohio? Well, it's a great honor, and uh, my mom and dad have both passed away, but they were alive, able to see, be, join me and be a part of that uh, weekend in Columbus, Ohio, uh, you know, back in the, the 90s, and it was really um, 95, and it was really uh, a great, you know, a, a very nice honor um, to be, you know, to, to you know, be uh, picked for that and uh, to be a part of that ceremony. And uh, since then, we've done some mentoring projects and uh, talked to students and things like that, which I love to do, and I do that almost all the time anyway. But especially with the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame, they have some very nice programs. So. That has been a, a big honor for me, and, uh, you know, it's especially neat that my mom and dad could join me for that uh, when, when the induction ceremony was held in Columbus uh, back in 95. Now, Christine, would you say, I mean, what would you say is your, your biggest uh, accolade or award that you received in your amazing career? Well, that's a, a very nice question, a great question, hard, almost hard to answer. I'm, I'm so fortunate. <laughs> I get to do what I love to do, get to write and talk about sports uh, for a living. I travel the world. I'm getting ready for my 15th Olympics in this, London this summer will be my 15th consecutive Olympic Games winner in summer. So, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate. I, I think maybe, though, of all of them, uh, the things that have, have, I've been lucky enough to get, uh, I, I, it might well be the, um, being inducted in Northwestern University, my alma mater, Northwestern, um, uh, Medill School of Journalism Hall of Achievement because uh, I've always felt that Medill uh, was the number one, the best journalism school in the country. And when I went there, I was very nervous, as I, most, I think all of us were, you know, about being at this great journalism school and, you know, was I ready for this and, you know, was I really going to be a journalist and how hard was it going to be and how competitive and all that. So to think that not only did things go well, even after being so nervous, if, if there are any parents with kids who kind of worry about things or, or younger people themselves listening, you know, I would encourage you, that's, that's a good thing. Use, use that, those nerves in, in an edgy way and, and help them make you better. And I know I worked harder because of that. And we all pushed each other, as it turned out, in a wonderful competitive and friend, friendly way. And then to be honored uh, in 2004, by uh, being in the Medill Hall of Achievement or Hall of Fame for the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, that really was a highlight. I, you know, I guess that's when I could sit back and say, hey, I made it. I, I, it worked out okay <laughs> after all. So well, I think that one meant a lot because it was from the journalism school that obviously uh, from where I, you know, everything else kind of comes from that. Now, just curious, Christine, have you ever been asked to do a commencement speech at Northwestern? I Not at Northwestern, no, um, but I've done – uh, a couple of them, uh, San Diego State University, their business school, uh, sports business program, excuse me, and then Tiffin University in Ohio. I was their commencement speaker in 2007. What an honor that was at Tiffin um, in northwest Ohio, about an hour, hour and a half drive from Toledo, and then the University of Toledo. Uh, I did the commencement uh, exercise speech there, and in, in uh, all cases I received an honorary um, degree from each of those universities. So what an honor. Uh, it sounds like a <laughs> repetitive thing to say, but uh, <laughs> incredible honor to be um, to have those opportunities and to do those things. So that uh, that was pretty cool. Definitely having you. Definitely have definitely an honor having you on tonight because, like you said, it's um, your career is just so uh, 
polished. I don't know how else to ex- describe it. And um, you giving back to those colleges must be a great thing. So um, I'm also looking at my notes here, and it says you've covered the Redskins for, in the, for the Washington Post in the 80s. Now, considering how great the, the Redskins were back then, what, experience, what was that experience like? Well, they were winning games back then. I'm sure there are people now going, <laughs> the Redskins actually were good. Yeah, they were really good. Um, I covered the Redskins from 85 through 87, and I was the beat writer for the Washington Post, the first woman to ever cover the Redskins. And, um, you know, that was uh, there were women that came well before me and were pioneers and opened doors that I walked through. But uh, certainly there was a fair amount of attention when I was put on the Redskin beat uh, in, in Washington, where I'm talking to you uh, from right now, and there was a lot of attention, a lot of focus on that, which was, uh, which was, you know, okay. I, I obviously dealt with all that and did all, answered all the questions and did all the interviews. And uh, but even as I wanted to just be, you know, the journalist covering the story and just getting into that, as opposed to being the focus of everyone's attention. But um, I, uh, that was, uh, there was a time of great transition for the Redskins. Joe Gibbs was the coach. Uh, they had won the Super Bowl after the 82 season, uh, winning the uh, January of 83 Super Bowl against the Miami Dolphins at the Rose Bowl. And then the next year they'd been in the Super Bowl in Tampa against the Oakland Raiders, or were they the L.A. Raiders then? The Raiders, which, wherever they were, and, um, and mm-hmm. lost that game. Uh, Joe Seisman and company lost that Super Bowl. And then a few years go by, and now um, 85, 86, 87, lots of transition, that's when Joe Theismann broke his leg. Jay Schrader became the quarterback. Then Doug Williams. John Riggins, the great running back, was replaced by uh, Timmy Smith and then George Rogers. Um, actually, kind of simultaneously, George Rogers uh, was, the, uh, was the main replacement. Um, you had uh, Mark Mosley, the one of the last of the straight-on kickers. Then he was re- you know, replaced. He was gone. Dave Budd. So it, it was an incredible turnover. And Joe Gibbs was able to put it all together. And in the 87 strike season, 82 was a strike season. The Redskins won the Super Bowl. 87, a strike season, and labor dispute, and the Redskins won the Super Bowl again. And I covered every day of that, 87, all the way to January of 88, and the Redskins beat the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl. So, uh, And then two weeks later, I flew to Calgary and uh, covered my first Winter Olympic game. So um, lots of great memories from that time in 88. But it was a great experience for me to cover a team, to write tough stories, to not have everyone like you all the time. They have Jack Kent Cook, the owner, mad at me, and Bobby Beathard, the general manager. Joe Gibbs, uh, always a class act, would always say his piece, get angry, and then move right on. And he was always said, okay, we'll move on, and everything's fine, and classy all the way. So lots of great experiences covering uh, the Redskins during those three years. Would you say that your um, relationship with Joe Gibbs was, um, you know, what type of I guess what type of coach was he? Because I I don't know much of Joe Gibbs other than uh, what I see on TV. Well, how would you describe Joe Gibbs? I'm just curious. Yeah. Oh, uh, honest and fair. Never would go off the record. So he would always where most people do say, Hey, I'll go off the record, tell you something. Always stayed on the record. Uh, I love that about him. Always kept his word. Um, a, a very honorable man. Um, uh, really a delight to work with. I mean, we did not agree on everything. He'd get mad if I wrote something about the team that he didn't like. But, of course, that's the nature, frankly, of the beat writer, that you're not the beat writer is not always going to be uh, everyone's best friend. And uh, the coach, if he's doing his job, and the beat writer, if he or she is doing their job, often you will disagree, and uh, you might have arguments. And that means we're probably both doing our jobs. So Gibbs understood that. He was great about it. You know, the, I was the first woman, as I said, to cover the Redskins, and so uh, I was going in the Redskins locker room because Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the National Football League at the time, issued an edict saying that all teams had to have equal access for female reporters as well as male reporters. So no, gone were the days of having women wait outside in the loading dock. Right. Women reporters from major newspapers, that was just an untenable situation. That had to end. And so... Um, so Gibbs was uh, said in an interview he didn't personally believe women should be in the locker room. He's a religious guy, and he didn't believe in that. But he said um, those are the rules, and we will follow the rules. And the NFL says that it's equal access, and so uh, Christine Brennan will be in the locker room, and she'll be treated right. And he kept his word. Everything he said was true. And uh, I was treated right, and that was from the top down, from Jack Kent Cook. And Joe Gibbs, they made sure 
that uh, that the Washington Post beat writer, happened to be me, happened to be a woman, would be treated properly. So I give Joe Gibbs a ton of credit for setting the tone, a very classy, professional tone for those Redskins teams as they were also maybe the team of the decade, the Redskins with uh, so, so many great performances, uh, two Super Bowls in the 80s and one more, in, you know, two, two victories in the 80s and then one more in the 90s. Um, you know, Joe Gibbs, and then he goes to NASCAR and immediately wins there. So Gibbs is right. an incredible uh, leader and an incredible organizer. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, you know, when you look at the fact that in the 10-year span they went to four Super Bowls winning three of them, that, that's just amazing. Um, you know, speaking of something else that's amazing, something that, that interests me, I, I'd like to get your take on it. You know, obviously, uh, you know, I started off the interview by saying that you're an award-winning, uh, you know, columnist, but you're also a best-selling author. Now, you've written three books on figure skating over the years. What I'd like to know is what specifically uh, fascinates you so much about that sport in particular? Well, I was covering the Tanya Nancy saga back in 1994. Of course, that was I remember that, yeah. the Wackford around the world, January 6, 1994. Uh, that was with the Olympic trials in Detroit for figure skating for the, uh, the, uh, the Norway, the Lillehammer Olympic Games, a month and a half later. And so I was covering all this, and I'd been around skating a, a little bit, covering the sport. I'd written a book with Tracy Austin, the tennis star, and I just saw figure skating as having such a rich texture to it. All this controversy, all these issues, people love it. TV ratings through the roof. The short program in Lillehammer, Norway, February of 94, is the sixth highest rated program in television history. To this day, forevermore, the last mash is number one. Uh, Who shot JR from Dallas? One episode of Roots, <laughs> two Super Bowls, and Tanya Nancy. 48.5 rating. Uh, now, there are more TVs now, so there's more viewers of the Super Bowl or whatever now, but. In terms of TV ratings, the Super Bowl will never reach a 48.5. That's half the nation watching figure skating that was eight hours old and everybody knew the results. Uh, A tape delay. Unbelievable. So you knew the interest was there. And with all the incredible stories you could tell journalistically and no one had ever done a journalistic look at this sport, and women love it and women buy books, so it was a (laughs) no-brainer. I jumped in with both feet and it became a bestseller. And it was great fun, and I also dealt with the very serious issue of the tragic loss of life due to HIV and AIDS among the men in the sport, um, the wonderful creative men. Again, early on, you know, the mid-'90s, before a lot of people were really uh, focusing on, on HIV and AIDS. And so it's a very serious look at the sport, Inside Edge. And the book did so well, became a bestseller, that I then got a book deal to, that reflected the success of Inside Edge and followed all the skaters to the Nagano Olympics. And then I did a coffee table book on the sport as well. So that's it. It's um, I won't be doing any more, probably. I just uh, I don't see any. You know, the interest isn't there anymore. But at the time, it was huge, and I was very lucky to kind of ride the crest of that wave, and uh, have the success that I did, especially with Inside Edge. Now, out of all the books you've written, which one would you say is your favorite? Well, I, I think it's probably my father-daughter memoir, Best Seat in the House, which came out in 2006. My dad had passed away by then, but he had read the book proposal. He read the, about 10, 12,000 words. He knew what was going to be in the book. All those anecdotes and stories are in the book, so that made me feel great that he knew I was writing the book and I, I as he was uh, struggling in those last few days, um, you, know, you know, dying in a very dignified way with cancer. Um, you know, I talked to him about that. I said, Dad, I'm going to write that book. I'm going to tell our story. So Best Seat in the House is a father, a daughter, and our journey through sports, and it's my uh, story of my love for my dad and, and how he brought me into sports and also brought my siblings, uh, you know, gave us all confidence and, and uh, you know, really gave us, uh, showed us the way, as my mo- our mom did too, um, coming from the Depression in Chicago with almost nothing and, um, and now having, uh, obviously, all these opportunities that he gave us and that my mom gave us. So that's that book, and that certainly is, is my favorite. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that, and, you know, I mean, I could relate to that in the sense that my father is the one who, in my life, in my brother's life, you know, we're sports fans because of him, we're Mets fans, and we've suffered our entire lives because of him, so we know what it's like to have a dad with, you know, such influence over you. I remember, uh, you know, even just recently, I'm a big Giants fan, and, you know, watching the Super Bowl with him, and uh, the last five years or so, we've pretty much watched the Super Bowls together, and watching the Giants win two, you know, of the last four, it's just it's just been so amazing and it's definitely something that i want to pass on to my daughter and you know any other children that i may have 
um, that love of sports. So I can I can understand why that would be so important and so personal to you. Now, something else that I'd like to you know kind of find out and delve a little bit more into is the the whole Olympics aspect of your career. Now, what what's it like to cover the Olympics? You've covered you know as many as you have you know over so many years since uh, with the mid '80s. Now, describe for us the fans you know those listening and of course the the two of us. What's it like to cover the Olympics? And do you have a favorite of any of any of the Olympics that you have covered? Well, you know it's uh, it's the greatest. There's nothing quite like it. So I love it. I'm just feel again so lucky and fortunate to cover them. Uh, I think you know each one was great from LA all the way through to um, to two years ago in Vancouver. Just terrific and great opportunities. And I feel as I said so fortunate to cover them. But I would say. The Lillehammer Olympics in Norway, so beautiful, and then the story to end all stories, the past Nancy story. Um, I think that really, to me, in many ways, uh, was my favorite Winter Olympics. Although, I mean, I love Vancouver. I, my right, right. I love Torino, you know. Uh, and then summer, it's just different. The Summer Olympics are grander. They're, they're a There's so much going on. Um, it's just a different feeling entirely and uh, much more of an international I mean, of course, the Olympics are always international, but you've got the whole world of the Olympics. And often major issues play out there, too, like in Atlanta with the bombing. Um, you have protests. You have all kinds of, of things happening with the summer games. The, the winter games, you know, you've got, got a lot of guys named Sven um, and women named Ingrid who snowboards, you know, at the Winter Olympics. And the Summer Olympics is a little bit of a more diverse crowd. And um, But I think that that's... Uh, I love the Athens Olympics, which were in 2004, because they, it was the old Athens, you know, the 1896 stadium where they renewed the old games. That was the stadium used for archery. And the marathons, the men's and women's marathon, started in marathon in <laughs> Greece. You know, you can't beat that. Yeah, and the old the shot put, the men's and women's shot put was in ancient Olympia, and I covered that. I went to ancient Olympia. You know, we think Fenway Park is old. You know, <laughs> ancient Olympia to watch an event, you know, actually in the spot where the ancient uh, Greeks uh, competed. Wow, just amazing. So, um, but again, I, I, Beijing was so meaningful and also so awful as they threw dissidents in jail, you know, because of those games. How dare, you know, those awful, the awful Chinese government, what they did and what they still, there are still people in jail because of their protesting or their concern about the Beijing Olympics. And we can compare that to what will happen in London in a free society this summer where people can protest freely and they can complain and they can talk and say what they believe and won't that be wonderful? Even if it disrupts traffic, it will be so great to see that freedom in London versus uh, the terrible authoritarian, totalitarian state of China where uh, they were so brutal to so many of their um, and, and treat, mistreated so badly their citizens. So uh, I was very proud to be able to write some of those columns from the Beijing Olympics. Even Mitt Romney in his new book uh, quotes me, quotes one of my columns from the Beijing Olympics, not a political statement at all, but it was what an honor to find out that uh, someone like, like him was quoting a column of mine talking about how the Beijing authorities treated their people in Beijing. Right. So, again, those issues come up in the Summer Olympics so much more than the Winter Games. And while it's not sports, I also... I, I will readily write about and talk about issues of, that, are, that are in our culture and that are more international in scope. And so the Summer Games certainly gives us a lot of that. Now, I think another thing that you're proud of, I'm sure, Christine, is uh, that you're an, a big advocate for women in sports for a very long time. I mean, how would you compare from when you started first in sports journalism all the way to present day? Certainly things have changed for the better. Um, a lot more women covering sports. I wish there were more. Uh, it's a great career, wonderful adventure of a lifetime. It's terrific. But I think, um, uh, but for what it, you know, for the reality of knowing that, you know, it's, uh, women are still a minority, um, it's great to see so many young women. And I love to try to be a role model and maybe the role model I never had because I didn't know women wrote sports. There was no Internet. You, you know, you I didn't, there were women writing sports when I was in high school, but I never saw their stories. And to find out that these women existed and that um, they're out there, it was just, uh, it's very, you know, it was cool for me as a youngster, so I know how important that is for people to have role models. So I, uh, but yeah, things have changed. Locker room, of course, long since resolved. 
Uh, if anyone asks, do women go in locker rooms? Yes, they're in locker rooms right now, NBA games and NHL games and college sports, all equal access, male-female reporters, um, all getting the same access to athletes, and vice versa. Um, men are allowed in female locker, women's locker rooms. And I'd be the first journalist to stand outside with a man if he was not allowed in, but they all are allowed in. It's all equal. And um, golf and tennis and the Olympics are all in rooms, so we don't go into locker rooms, um, certainly not in uh, the Olympics ever for security reasons. Uh, for golf and tennis, it's rare. But those are, they bring the athletes to us because it's not a team. It's just an individual athlete um, in golf and tennis especially. Right. You don't have 45 guys you need to talk to. So, all, but that locker room issue, you know, the NFL was the last of the four big leagues to issue that policy in 1985. NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball were before that. And so um, we've heard every now and then about issues or problems. The New York Jets misbehavior a year and a half ago. Uh, yeah, the Patriots yeah. in 1990. But every day the locker rooms are it's resolved, the issues resolved, no problem. Uh, women do their jobs every day and do it well. So uh, lots, lots of positives, even as I wish we'd see more women uh, as sports editors, more women as columnists, and just more women in general. But um, it's, we're, the glass is certainly half full, not half empty. Now, would you say you had one or a few women that you actually looked up to when you're, you started out in your career? Well, I didn't really know, as I said a few minutes ago, I really didn't know that any women existed until I got to Northwestern and read a woman's sports byline. Uh, the sports editor of the Daily Northwestern was Helene Elliott, who is now the fine sports columnist for the Los Angeles Times. And Helene um, was uh, it, you know, a few years ahead of me at Northwestern, and so I, I saw her byline. Um, I guess I read a few magazine articles, so I knew that women were out there. But I, you really couldn't read, you know, I couldn't get my hands on the Boston Globe to read Leslie Visser. I couldn't get my hands on the Milwaukee Journal to read Tracy Dodds and then Jill Lieber and the Milwaukee Sentinel. You know, um, all the New York writers, Robin Herman and Jane Gross and Laurie Mifflin, I, you know, I, I, I just didn't see those papers because you just didn't, you know, there was no, I mean, you could buy the New York Times, but you really couldn't buy any other papers if you're in Toledo, Ohio. In Chicago, really, you couldn't really read it. There were no women until Helene got, um, went to the Chicago Sun-Times, I believe it was. So, you know, it, as far as heroes, it was really men. You know, I, I think coming I mean, for sports, it was Billie Jean and Chris Effort and Nancy Lopez and, you know, people like that, Olympic stars, Donna DeVarona, um, uh, some of the great swimmers in the 70s. Christine? Hello, Christine? She may have hit that dead spot she was referring to, sir. <laughs> yeah, uh, I believe uh, I believe that is the case. Um, let's see if we can get Christine back on the line here. <clears throat> sir, you know, it's definitely been quite the interview so far, and, you know, i got to get one of, one of our uh, pure gold staff here to get me some water because I, I'm getting all, getting all choked up on, on the side here, but let's... Uh, Let's see if we can dial back in and get Christine on the phone so that we can, you know, end the interview. Pretty much have just one more question before we close out. Hello there. Hey, Christine. Yeah, it's, you must have hit that uh, dead spot that you were referring to earlier. Actually, yeah, actually that wasn't it, but um, but who knows? Anyway, sorry about that. No, oh, it's all right. Um, you know, Joe had asked about uh, anybody you admired, and, and and you were speaking on on that whole topic when you got cut off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, sorry again, my apologies. Um, I think that uh, you know, I, I, it was a lot of men. I mean, I would read male writers and Sports Illustrated, and um, so I mean, there, there was maybe you know, I guess Sarah Pelegi was writing a little bit. Pelegi was writing a little bit for Sports Illustrated, but really, um, the Toledo Blade, my hometown paper, the Detroit Free Press. You know, I was reading a lot of those guys, all men, and and. Uh, so, you know, those were the, the bylines and Sports Illustrated writers and Sporting News, things like that. But um, I wish I could say they had a lot of women role models, uh, but we really didn't know they were there. So I'd say more uh, male, I was talking about the Olympic athletes too, women athletes I had some to look up to. But again, without an ESPN, without that. Are you guys there? Yeah, we're still here. Okay, sorry, I just heard another uh, <laughs> Another voice in my ear there, something about a cue. Um, 
so anyway, that that was um, that was definitely um, uh, it was a different time, but that's okay. As I said, I I had plenty of uh, my parents were encouraging me and and gave me every uh, opportunity to succeed. So I was I I was I had plenty of uh, inspiration and uh, an opportunity, and that's really all I I could ask for. Yeah, it's definitely quite an amazing career you've had. Now, considering all that, Christine, you know, before we let you go. Um, is there a single thing that you can say is your biggest contribution to the sports world or even the world at large, considering, you know, the area you grew up in and, and just, just what you finished answering about, uh, you know, not having too many female writers to look up to? What would you say is your biggest contribution to the uh, the world at large? Well, this is a very good question, and I, I'm not sure that I know for sure, you know, and I, I don't know that any of us knows. You hope you make a difference, and you hope you... Um, help people, and if I have done something, I, I would hope there would be maybe two two areas where that I might, you know, say is, is trying to answer the question. And one would be in terms of mentoring, um, you know, to try to be the role model I never had, to try to, um, I always talk to students. In fact, tonight, uh, one of the reasons I was still driving in D.C. was because I was at ABC News doing some sound bites for Good Morning America. We're doing a story tomorrow on the they're doing a story on Jeremy Lin and Tim Tebow and their friendship, and so that'll be on Good Morning America in the morning. Oh, nice. and I'll be, I'll be, I, I should be a um, soundbite or two in that piece. And I was talking to two, two of their interns, two young men, and one from uh, Missouri and one from Howard University. And so I spent 30 minutes talking to them. I can't stop I, talking to students and, and young people and encouraging them, whether it's journalism or just in life. And so I love mentoring, and I, I hope that. You know, I've done that hundreds of times, and I've got lots of students who email me and, and people I don't know, people I've met before, students that I meet when I talk to classes, which I do a lot of that. I'll do that tomorrow at the University of Maryland. I love that. And so if I'm helping some young people, if I'm encouraging them, if I'm answering their questions, giving them some thoughts or advice, that I hope that's uh, something that will be meaningful and is helpful to them. And then as far as the kind of columns I write and the issues I tackle, whether it's for USA Today, for ABC News, NPR, CNN, you know, the issues, there can be some really tough issues in sports, as we know. Uh, the Penn State story is a particularly sad and awful story. Uh, yeah, the, um, yeah, the issue of steroids in sports, uh, the Olympics and baseball and all performance-enhancing drugs and cheating and, and uh, role models and their behavior, you know, from Ben Roethlisberger to Tiger Woods, um, to Tim Tebow, to Annika Sorenstam, you name it, their behavior, good, bad, and different. You know, what do we expect of role models and what do we expect of athletes and, you know, the Michelle Kwans of the world who don't, never disappoint you um, versus someone like Tiger Woods who's been an incredible disappointment the last few years with his right. behavior um, off, off the, you know, uh, the course, not on, um, although that hasn't been so great either. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, I, if I've been able to shine a light on issues at sports, uh, that maybe move into our culture, and certainly women's sports, Title IX, and being an advocate, you know, for that great law, and talking about how good it is, in, in the face, face of some sometimes withering criticism of that law, when it's I think it's the most important law in our country the last 40 years. So, all of that, you know, if, if some of those columns and some of those issues can be things that move the ball forward a little bit, or remind people of things, or to stand the test of time, 50 years from now, people say, hey, there's they were talking about steroids and baseball back then, you know, um, then that would be nice. So maybe a little bit of uh, both of mentoring and helping young people and then also hopefully the issues and the positions I've taken will be those that stand the test of time and that uh, prove to be the right call, the right decision, not only now but years from now. Right, you know, and it's just, again, it's such an honor to to have you on and, you know, Christine, uh, I have one last question for you, only because you touched on something that I'd like to get your take on briefly. You mentioned sure. steroids in baseball. Um, any thoughts on the, this whole uh, this whole issue going on with Ryan Braun, where he tested, you know, extremely high, the whole testosterone issue, and then there was some type of, you know, malfunction in the in the system, the delivery system, and then he got off on a technicality. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it was a technicality. I think um, the way I'll look at it is that he tested positive for testosterone, as you said, high amounts of it. And I think that he never disputed that the sample, he never said the sample was tampered with. Um, he just didn't, you know, he and his lawyers didn't like the fact that it sat in uh, the collector's uh, refrigerator over the weekend. Well, 
other, I have talked to sources, other Major League Baseball players' uh, urine that was positive, you know, that tested positive, that was um, indicated, you know, that that was um, a performance-enhancing drug use. Um, those same thing happened, whether it sits in a um, FedEx box and a strip mall over the weekend in an envelope or whether it sits in someone's refrigerator, it's sealed always. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where they, um, the, Ryan Braun and his people never said that it was tampered with. Well, if it was a positive drug test, it was never tampered with. It sounds like to me he, he cheated. It was a positive right. drug test. And he got off on a technicality. But if we're going to have drug testing in this country, and we, know we want it in the Olympics, we want it in baseball and golf and the NCAA, the reality is that uh, sometimes those collectors store the samples over the weekend until they can go to the FedEx box during regular business hours uh, in their refrigerators, and they've still, Major League Baseball still was able to get in, I believe, two cases, um, was still able to get suspensions confirmed. And um, arbitrators ruled in favor of the suspensions of Major League Baseball players with the exact same scenario. Uh, the, uh, the, t the tester putting the, um, the urine samples in the refrigerator sealed and then waiting a couple days. So why this one? Why was this? This is drug testing, folks. You, this happens. These things um, are secure and safe within, in this case, the refrigerator. So why right. was this one? Overturn, and that's a, a very interesting question to ask. Yeah, it is, and you would think that baseball wouldn't. If anything, they wouldn't want the black eye. They wouldn't want to out one of their better players. I mean, it, it's just such a shame that stuff like this happens in sports, especially baseball, where baseball is a game more so than any other sport. It's all about numbers. It's all about those stats that are sacred to so many people. You know, the home run uh, record and. Well, not, now not so much with with Barry Bonds, but, you know, the 3,000 hits, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's just a shame, especially the guy who's the reigning MVP in the National League. And obviously we're going to see what he does this year. But, um, you know, the fact that you have these, these, these uh, superior athletes who still feel the need to cheat, knowing there's so much drug testing, knowing there's such a good chance of them getting caught. And, uh, you know, it's just a shame. And, of course, you have children who look up to these guys, the kids in Milwaukee where my niece lives and my, my brother's out there in Milwaukee. So, you know, kids like that, her, you know, her siblings growing up and just seeing it, it, it's a shame to me because that's the next generation and they're the ones who are important. And, you know, what are we going to tell our kids? Well, you know, what am I going to tell my daughter? Well, you know, you shouldn't cheat, but, uh, I mean, look at this person. He did it and, and this guy did it and this person, you know. So it's just it, it's a sad, sad situation. But, you know, again, I mean, we could talk about this all day, Christine. We, you know, we just thank you so very, very much for giving us you know, so much time here tonight. Uh, it was honestly a, a pleasure and, a, and an honor to have you on, and you know, hopefully, we can have you on again at some point in the future. But again, thank you so much, and you know, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Um, thanks for the nice words and and the kind comments, and uh, it's it's really been an honor to be on with you guys. So you have a great rest of the evening, and uh, thanks for having me on. I look forward to doing it again sometime soon. You too, Christine. Have a wonderful evening. Okay. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Folks, that was legendary, and I do mean legendary. If you get a chance, go on Wikipedia and look up Christine's uh, bio, look up her history. I mean, it's a veritable who's who or what's what of awards, you know, unparalleled. And we really haven't had a guest of that magnitude on. I mean, somebody with USA Today, I mean, that's as big as it gets there. Being on the Washington Post, the beat writer for the, the Redskins back in the day, just an amazing, amazing career. You know, multiple books, best-selling books, the first ever father-daughter sports memoir. I mean, sorry, it doesn't get much bigger than that. And it was it was wonderful having her on. And something she touched on that, of course, we, we were ending our conversation with, uh, I don't want to keep her any longer because, you know, we're pushing 40 minutes here with her. Um, the whole Ryan Braun scenario, so, you know, she touched on it. What are your thoughts on it? I mean, I think he definitely did the uh, performance-enhancing drugs, sir, but, um, you know, we're never 100%, you know, going to know exactly what did happen with that. I, I just think it's interesting I mean, I, I was telling you before. I mean, let's just also see what kind of performance he has this year. If if he ends up batting 250, 
I know that you said he has some talent, but if he ends up batting 250 and just doesn't look like himself from last year, then, I, I, I mean, he's obviously guilty then. And I just think that this really makes Jose Reyes, it really, you know, justifies him winning the, the batting title, and everyone complained about him taking himself out of the game. Well, Jose Reyes never did performance-enhancing drugs, to our knowledge. So I think right. uh, in that way, he, he comes out being, you know, the the winner in this whole situation. Yeah, you're you're right, and you know, and then we're gonna find out he's you know high on weed or something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> weed laced with uh, HGH or something. That that'll be the next thing. But you're right. I mean, it, it's just a total, it's such a scumbag thing. And speaking of that, you know, Lisa Marie Latino, who was our guest last week, she mentioned uh, on Twitter today, and I commented that somebody called Mike Francesa's show and, and called Ryan Brown a scumbag. And uh, you know, we get into the whole thing about the use of the word scumbag and. Francesca was stuttering, she said, and he was just kind of didn't know what to say because it's such a harsh word. But, sir, I mean, Mike has said it. Christine, who's much more informed than any of us are, um, I mean, they said it. They laid it out. He's guilty 100%. For anybody to think that he's not guilty, you're an absolute buffoon and a fool because this this sample was triple sealed. There's, it's impossible to, un, to unseal that, tamper with it, and then seal it back up again. And like Christine said, if this is a practice where people do leave it in the labs over the weekend, what's the difference? It's wrong. It, it's it's bad. He, you know, he cheated. He should be caught. It, it, there should be no – it should be the same all across the board. He should be suspended 50 games a third of the season. I mean, I just don't know, I just don't know sir. Like I said, what are you going to tell our kids when they go older? Well, you know, you shouldn't cheat in life and you shouldn't lie and you shouldn't do this. But you know what? All the famous people do it all the – all the big-time people do it, all the famous athletes. I mean, sir, what are we going to tell them? You're right. What are we going to tell them? But Charles Barkley said it best. You know, your uh, athletes shouldn't be your role models. Your parents should be your role models. That's the bottom line. Yeah, because Charles Barkley was a dirtbag when he played, and he was a dirty player. That's why he says that. Any any athlete who says that is a tool, and any anybody just like Charles Barkley – uh, anybody who says that, they're wrong. Athletes are role models. Kids play sports. Kids love sports. Kids look up to these people by default. You're a role model. You're in the public eye. Suck it up and take it. Yes, your parents should be your main uh, role model. Yes, your parents should be the main person influencing you. But you know what? Kids love sports. Joe, you know, you and I grew up, we're, we're the last of a dying breed in a generation where, you know, we were on Little League teams or baseball teams or softball teams or whatever the case is, and people we knew, and, you know, that's what we did. We went outside. We weren't playing video games 24-7, you know. I'm sure, just like me, you know, you were on a couple of teams. I know, you know, as an adult, you're bowling and stuff. So, you know, we're active guys, and the truth is that over the course of time, things have, have changed a little bit, but regardless of what, kids are still playing football. They're still playing baseball. They're still playing basketball rec leagues, and my nephew's, uh, you know, he's on, like, four soccer teams, and he's got talent, and, you know, maybe one day he'll be in the MLS or he'll be playing, uh, you know, his his dream of playing overseas, you know, but the truth of the matter is that, that that's what kids do. They they play sports, so you, Charles Barkley, you're, you are a role model, a bad one, a terrible one, you know, but you're a role model. These guys, you know, Barroyd Bonds and A-Rod and all these other clowns, they're, they're role models, whether they like it or not, sir. Sir, the day that Albert Pujols, God forbid, is ever caught with performance-enhancing drugs, then I lose all credibility with baseball. You're right. You're you're absolutely right. There's no if ands or buts about it. I mean, I wouldn't be. I hope not. You know, considering he's a Christian, wanted to be a good role model and stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised, sir. Yeah, I mean, I hope that he could he could break every record that Barry Bonds has in terms of home runs, and um, he could be the home run king, and then we could actually, you know, not have this controversy on who's actually the home run champion is it is it um is it Aaron is it Bonds is it Babe Ruth I mean I would love for Albert Pujols to to obliterate every offensive um you know baseball record Yeah yeah I mean I would too again you know hopefully he he's clean which is I mean we don't even know that's the, that's the sad part sir you don't even know if uh if he's clean if he's not clean if he's dirty or whatever the case is sir it's uh out of control, and I mean out of control. Yep, we definitely have some other hot topics to hear uh, to talk about, sir, but before we do, let's hear a testimonial on Pure Gold. This is Miss Pennsylvania USA 2011, Amber Joy Watkins. Make sure you tune in to Pure Gold every week. Check them out for yourself at puregoldpg.com. It is truly a show about anything and everything. 
And Dave and Joe, tell it like it is. Thank you, Amber. Now, sir, last night, it was my birthday, but I was able to catch Monday Night Raw. The road to WrestleMania continues. And um, I think, you know, the the main three things that I want to touch upon are the, the two promos and then this whole crap fest going on with the two GMs. But um, let's first talk about CM Punk and Chris Jericho. Um, do you like how this feud is progressing? I mean, other than the fact that, you know, they booked Jericho the wrong way completely since he's returned. Um, have you liked their interactions between Punk and Jericho? I love the interaction of Punk and Jericho. I just, you know, I haven't liked the way that it was booked at all. Um, last night was great. It showed you why they're so good, why Punk and Jericho are, you know, two of the best in the world at what they do to, you know, quote them and to quote uh, the fans. I mean, th- these guys are awesome. There's no no doubt about it. But, sir, when you really look at the situation, when you really look at, at what's going on, I mean, the booking of this has been terrible. Now they're finally – and the funny thing is, sir, Punk touched on this last night, that we didn't need all this. You didn't need the the vignettes and the promos and the, uh, you know, end of the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All you needed to do was challenge them, and, and Punk would have accepted it, and that kind of undercut everything that's been going on for the past, you know, basically two months with Jericho because it's, it's two months since he returned or will be, uh, you know, on Thursday – not Thursday or Friday, whatever. But, um, you know, he came back. We said he should have won the Rumble. would have been the better way to book this. You could have had Sheamus. Considering what's going on in SmackDown, Sheamus could have easily won a, a lame battle royal like um, like Jericho won to get this title shot, and it, it would have made more sense. Have him win the Rumble. Have him claim that he is the best in the world. And another reason why he won the Royal Rumble, something Punk has never done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Something else to add to Jericho's long list of accolades and then you have uh, Sheamus win a battle royal, you know, which is obviously not as prestigious, and that's it. I mean, Sheamus didn't need to win the Rumble, and, and that's just a fact. But the way the booking has gone about this, you know, it kind of made no sense. And you know, but here we are. I don't like, I don't like um, the road to it, but I do like the byproduct of it. And I think that uh, this is definitely going to be a great feud. If last night was any indication, it's just going to be, you know, from top to bottom. The facts are the facts, and the numbers don't lie. This match will steal the show at WrestleMania. Unless The Undertaker loses, uh, this is going to steal the show. So to me, there's no doubt about it. I think two things from the promo that I it sticks in my head is uh, Punk referring to um, Jericho's jacket as a light bright jacket. Uh, you know, the light bright jacket. I thought that was pretty yeah. funny. Oh, that course, was funny, that was and I thought that um, Jericho acknowledging that his whole promo or his whole re-intro to the WWE has been lame, because did you see how he mentioned the fact that despite all those vignettes about him being whatever, um, he was just there because he's the best in the world? I think he was actually taking a shot at the writers. Well, I, I think that, uh, see, I don't, I don't know about that, only because Jericho has so much pull on his character, so much control. I'm sure he had a lot. He had a lot to do with it. I, I think it was more Punk taking a shot at it because Punk did mention that they didn't need any of that stuff. They didn't need any of the periphery stuff. They just needed a challenge: best in the world versus best in the world. And so, I mean, that match is going to be truly a, a sight to see. That's going to be amazing. They need to give that 30 minutes, uh, I'd say minimum, let them work their magic in the ring. And Jericho is in the best shape of his life. You know, last night what I loved, sir, um, was watching him put Punk in the Lion Tamer. Not the walls of Jericho, but actually putting him in the lion tamer and flipping him down. Um, I loved it, sir. Absolutely, positively loved it. And uh, it was good to see. But, um, you know, like I said, I do think that Punk was the one taking a shot at the the writing a little bit. Right. And now, you know, we still have like three or four, even maybe five more Raws. So it would be interesting how this uh, feud... uh, develops and you know how much more promos they could cut i guess they might be in some type of tag matches or something i mean we still got the whole month of march to go and you know when we talk about promos sir i'm gonna be honest with you that promo was good but the promo between the rock and john cena to end the show last night i thought was off the hook i mean i i loved everything the rock said and as much as i hate john cena i thought john cena had a lot of good points last night I, uh, you know, I agree. I think the Punk Jericho promo, honestly, I think it was better because it was so much shorter. Um, but I do agree that Rock and Punk were great. I've noticed a lot of the internet fans turning on 
The Rock, just at least in terms of, you know, the Cena got the better of him, Cena's better, Cena's this, Cena's that, you know, Cena spoke briefly, Rock spoke much longer. Now, let me ask you this, I'm not sure if you heard about this, but did you uh, did you check out or troll the, the news sites, the blogs, the dirt sheets, that The Rock had some, uh, he had promo notes written on his arm? I mean, I, I didn't know about that, but uh, Cena actually called them out on it, and I thought that yeah. was very interesting. It was definitely interesting. Now, I've I've never seen a clear picture of it. Uh, I'm not even sure. You know, it seems like it's legit, but uh, I'm not really sure. I I tend to think that they're probably Rock did it as a way for Cena to have something to rip on him about. Because um, I've never I've seen The Rock and I've never seen him ever or any other guy with promo notes written on their arms. Um, there was Justin had a guest on his show today who mentioned that he had seen you know a guy who works in the wrestling business and Rock has never had that on his arm ever. So he was kind of wondering why to, why yesterday, and it kind of gave a point for Cena to, to rip him on. But truthfully, what I loved was the crowd reaction, regardless of what. Rock could have come out taking a big dump in the ring and then put on an adult diaper and walked around, you know, making farting noises like Eugene would have done back in the day. The crowd loved it. They ate it up and they booed Cena. So it just amazes me. The crowd still is anti-Cena. Um, and, it, you know, what Cena said was good, good stuff, no doubt. But what I found a little interesting was at the end of the whole thing, Rock seemed like he was a little thrown off by it. When he closed out the show, when he closed out with his little mini promo, he seemed he he was a stuttering Joe B. He mentioned the same thing a couple of times. He kind of kept repeating himself, and it was definitely uh, the Rock was a little bit off at the very end there. Well, imitation is the best form of flattery. So, Rock, here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> but uh, I mean, what do you think about that, sir? Yeah, I don't know what to make of it, other than the fact that um, these two guys know how to cut great promos, and I don't know if The Rock was upset about something John Cena did. But if if this is all be, you know for show, I think they're doing a great job making it seem like these guys really hate each other. And I, th- I mean, we'll have plenty of time to discuss it, and I think we'll have you know some experts um, throughout the the month of March on discussing WrestleMania. But uh, to be honest with you, right now, February twenty eighth, I mean. The only conclusion, I mean, the only way to end this feud is for The Rock to actually win and John Cena just to snap and go heel. I mean, I don't, you know, there's no way I could see John Cena winning at this point because it wouldn't, you know, what would that do? I mean, The Rock is going to be, is The Rock going to want to rematch then at the next big pay-per-view? It just has to end with John Cena losing and losing bad, I think, and then, you know, having, having him turn on the fans completely. I agree, but that's more of us and our creative booking and what we want, what we prefer, because we obviously want Cena to go heel. Everybody seems to think beyond the shadow of a doubt that The Rock is going to lose. Now, The Rock is the type to be willing to put somebody over, just like he did with Hogan and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, The Rock has lost plenty of times at WrestleMania, unlike Cena, who pretty much always wins. I do love the fact that Cena is not in the title match, breaking his ridiculous uh, world title and even the U.S. title streak that he had going like eight years or whatever the case was. Um, yeah, yeah, well, since 2000, uh, not, not 2000, since WrestleMania 20, he's been in a title match every single year in, uh, in his, his existence in at the WrestleMania pay-per-view. Um, but I'd love to see The Rock win. I don't see how the crowd in Miami is going to go home happy with Cena winning the match. And I'd love to see it. I hope that The Rock wins, but uh, I'm not too sure about that. Uh, what would you think is best for business, though, sir? Because if The Rock is is going to wrestle at SummerSlam and be at next year's WrestleMania and possibly at the big pay-per-views wrestling, then I could definitely see this feud extending itself if The Rock you know, is going to take a loss. I mean, I could see that, too, but it'd be interesting. You know, what if John Cena just, like, can't pin The Rock and eventually he resorts to, like, extreme tactics and actually cheats to win, like, wouldn't that go against everything that John Cena is about, and wouldn't that be interesting to set up the next match? Yeah, it would, definitely, sir. I mean, if if The Rock loses, then what's he going to say? Yeah, John, you were right, you're better than me? I mean, I honestly don't even understand. I don't understand the outcome of either side. I mean, if the thing is, from a business perspective, I guess it's better if Cena wins, because Cena's actually there. Rock isn't, you know, and Cena's going to be there the week after WrestleMania and two weeks after WrestleMania, whereas The Rock is going to be gone. But uh, I don't see the point of Cena winning either. Like I said, you know, I agree with you. I'd love to see Cena finally go heel, turn on the fans, and et cetera, et cetera. But I don't believe that's where the WWE is going. I think we're going to be throwing up at the end of the night, throwing up the pizza that we order because uh, I think The Rock is going to be at the losing end of this there, unfortunately. I mean, you talk about throwing up. I need to get to this other point before we close out the show. I mean, can you tell me something about what's going on between Teddy Long and Johnny Ace? 
I mean, are they actually going to have a match at WrestleMania to be the general manager of both shows? Is this what we're leading to here? I think what we're leading to is something that I've seen in, in some of the dirt sheets, like WrestleZone. Well, I wouldn't consider WrestleZone a dirt sheet because Justin Labar uh, has proven many times over that he has legitimate, legitimate, you know, real deal sources in the WWE and even T, uh, TNA, but to a lesser extent, mostly WWE. Um, you know, his articles and stuff, things he said has come true. He did report first before anybody that I saw that WrestleMania was going to be at, um, you know, MetLife Stadium next year. So, you know, props to him. And, of course, you know, I'm sure we're going to have him on before WrestleMania. But, uh, sir, I think what's going to happen is it's going to be a team, you know, Santino, Watunga, whoever's going to be leading. And I think it's going to be the faces with Teddy and the heels with uh, Laurinaitis and some type of, you know, elimination match at WrestleMania. I mean, that's possible. So, are we talking about, like, a Donald Trump, Vince McMahon, like, each one of them has somebody represent them at WrestleMania? Well, no, I think it's going to be a team thing. I think it'll be, like, a five-on-five five as opposed to, uh, you know, th- that would kind of eliminate money in the bank. And I think yeah. they're keeping the money in the bank pay-per-view at the end. I'm not really sure what happened with that because I can't really find the WWE, uh, you know, 2012 pay-per-view, legit pay-per-view schedule. But I believe that um, it's going to be that type of match. It's not going to be one-on-one. It's going to be... A whole team, so it'll be, it'll be a nice long match, and, and the winner gets to control both shows. And I definitely don't want to see Johnny Ace on SmackDown, even though I don't watch it. <laughs> but uh, you yeah. know, for the most part, I definitely don't want to see Johnny Ace on both shows. Too. I hear that. And then finally, one last big point um, has nothing to do with what happened on Raw, but the announcement that HPK will be returning next week. Now, sir, I mean, I'm going to tell you about my fantasy booking, and then I'm going to ask you: Do you think he's back just to answer that question? About like he what he um, wrote an article on is if he's better than Triple H or is this going to start planting the seeds of potentially HBK entering the Hell in the Cell triple threat WrestleMania? Let's do it. If it was somebody else, I would say yes. Obviously, I want Shawn to be there. Absolutely, one hundred percent want Shawn Michaels to be in the uh, WrestleMania main event. My God, I would love it. I would go nuts. Uh, I'd love to see that, a triple threat, Hell in a Cell, but that's probably not going to happen because I do think that Sean has uh, retired. I think Sean is not going to wrestle again, sadly enough, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I hold out hope, and I'm hoping that, that, kind of, that that's what we can touch on. You know, I hope, I hope that we're going to be talking about a triple threat at WrestleMania, but I really highly 99% doubt it, sir. And you know I'm so a huge JPK on- fan, so I'd love to see that. So nothing on the dirt sheets, nothing that Justin's reporting that potentially HBK would come back for one more match? No, 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 nothing like that. Justin is completely convinced that he will never come back to wrestle because he thinks that's the one retirement that's going to stick. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would personally love a triple threat hell in the cell with those three. Um, I mean, it would be a cheap way for Undertaker to win, I'm sure, then, because, you know, you could have Triple H and HBK, like, knock each other out and then just, you know, Taker... Um, and then you would also like um, lessen the burden of Undertaker in a match, you know. Considering that he put on such a poor performance last year, sir, and you ha- if you put in trip- uh, Triple H and HBK in that match together with Undertaker, you know, you definitely lessen the burden of uh, Undertaker in that match. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, you and I are probably the only two people on the planet who hated last year's uh, match between Triple H and the Undertaker. But of course, we know more than most, so uh, you know, let's get that out of the way. Um, you're right. I mean, you think there's no way he could beat the two of them in a pay-per-view, uh, you know, main event triple threat, especially you know considering, but that probably what would happen. But sir, I think it's going to be Triple H Undertaker 17, and uh, Triple H is going to lose, and you know we'll be we'll be crying in our pizza about that also. So, sir, is it safe to say that on the road to WrestleMania we will have uh, a lot of our experts on giving us their take, um, you know, on the road to WrestleMania? I would say so. I was thinking today it would be great to have an all-WrestleMania show like we did all Super Bowl from Whole Foods, but it's not possible because WrestleMania is um, the same time as opening day for baseball, and regardless of what, we're going to have to cover the Mets. We're going to have to cover opening day with the Mets and the Yankees and, you know, uh, what the expectations are, how many, you know, triple-digit losses the Mets are going to have and how many triple-digit wins the Yankees might have. So, you know, there's no way we can do an all-WrestleMania show, but... You know, we're also going to have to see, considering that there's not that many shows until WrestleMania, um, we're going to have to try to, you know, either double book some of these guys or get them on, because I'd love to have Dave on. I'm sure he'll come on. LaGreca, I'm sure that Doug would come on if I can find him hiding under the rock that he is. Justin, of course, is probably uh, 
you know, he'll come on for a fifth time, set another record. Uh, Josh will absolutely, you know, Josh is, is chomping at the bit to come on, and of course, Pyro will come on. So uh, I think there's a good chance we're going to have all of our experts on, you know, the, the two weeks or so uh, around WrestleMania time, Sarah. We could even have, you know, save one or two for after WrestleMania just to talk, you know, to talk on that whole scenario. Good. Uh, before we close out and give you my take on my birthday, as it will, you have any nuggets for us? <laughs> um, you know, no, I don't actually. Other than uh, that, that wonderful hat that I touched on earlier, I'd like to find out a little bit more about your birthday, sir, and how that went. Well, let's just say that it was probably one of my longest days, um, just work-wise, because um, just you know, my other job, my other career, I actually went into work pretty early, thinking I could come home early and enjoy the day with the family. That didn't turn out too well. I got home around five, five thirty, right around dinner time. And, um, you know, the best thing that you could hear is walking through the door and saying, you know, hearing my daughter Sabrina saying, hi, Daddy, running up to me, giving me a big hug and kiss, and then singing happy birthday to me, and then saying, you got to open your present, which I did right away. And it was this nice, pure gold, fitted hat. Um, wearing it right now. Wish you could see it at home, but, uh, you know, you could imagine. And uh, I just love it, sir. I got a pure gold hat, and I got some pure gold uh, equipment that I desperately needed, and um, I had a good day. I mean, I... Had it with you know my wife, my my daughter, and my dad came over, and um, it was a quiet event because it was during the weekday. So um, you know, thirty five, and still alive. <laughs> yeah, that why don't you depress the rest of the, the pure gold fans out there, sir? Thirty five <laughs> and still alive. Wow, <laughs> what, what a what a rhyme, sir. <laughs> what a line, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just amazing, sir. What else did you get for uh, your, your birthday? Um, I got this nice headset that I, um, like I said, desperately needed that I could now, uh, you know, basically do some notes and do some other things while I am on the air. So um, I got that, and I got a mic stand for when we do our famous remotes at either Whole Foods or Biggie's. Oh, of course, uh, no doubt about that. Well, speaking of Biggie's, you know, yeah. we were there uh, last week, sir, and we totally forgot to talk about it. But man, what what an amazing what an amazing place that is. That food was off the hook. Best wings I've ever had, hands down. The wife was a huge fan of the or the wings, loved them. The bone the bone in wings. Um, I mean the cheese the cheese sticks were some of the best I've ever had. Great cheese steak. I mean it, it was just an awesome place, awesome environment. I loved it, sir. I absolutely recommend that anybody, you know, in the in that area in Carlstad, uh, you know, go check out Carlstad, uh, you know, Woodridge. Um, you know, Hackensack, that area in New Jersey, you know, Route 17, Rutherford, East Rutherford, Secaucus, go check out Biggie's on 17 South. Awesome food, sir. Absolutely awesome. We have to go there again, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I had a good time, too. I'm I'm surprised we forgot about it because we talked about uh, the whole time we got mentioned them on the air, but uh, definitely good food, good times. Uh, we went on Fat Tuesday, so there was a lot of people there for a Tuesday night, but, um, you know, Great place, and hopefully we can do a remote there very soon. Yes, yeah, sir, absolutely. You know, we got to make sure we get that out there. Uh, anything else you'd like to touch on, sir? No, I think we're good. <laughs> all right, well, we'll touch on the NBA and all the other uh, goodness uh, next next week. Uh, when we do our, our next show, we're going to have Erin uh, McDougal, who was, the, uh, you know, was a, a writer uh, for MMA, and she's now actually training for MMA. So we're going to have her on, and, uh, you know, we're, we're probably going to be joined by Mr. Brightlight's Jarrett Foster himself. i got to confirm with Jarrett, you know, get him on. He's got some things he'd like to get off his chest, you know, considering everything going on. The IWF reunion show is uh, at the end of April, so that should be uh, interesting stuff. And I read online that Kevin Knight had secured two more tryouts for some of his IWF guys. So it'll be interesting to have Jarrett on, who's, uh, you know, a friend of the program and been on this show quite a few times. So. Yeah, and I can't mention enough. Um, which I haven't mentioned at all, which sounds like a Jobyism, but I can't mention enough that the last couple of shows have been really solid, solid gold, pure gold, and uh, our listening audience just keeps increasing, and I think uh, I just want to thank everyone that's listening out there, and uh, hopefully you're telling your friends and their friends are telling their friends, telling us about the great show on turf. That's pure gold, sir. <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, Kurt Warner uh, joining the, the team over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no no doubt about that, sir, but... Uh, you know, the truth is that this is the best show out there. It's the best show ever. 
and we thank all of you for uh, for listening and for joining us this evening. Of course, we thank the incomparable, the uh, unbelievable, the unparalleled Christine Brennan. And I say that tongue firmly, not planted in cheek. Look up her resume. Like I said, speaks for itself. Amazing woman, an amazing uh, role model for women out there, and you know, sports fans in general. Just about you know, going after your dreams and achieving them. So we thank her for giving us some time, and of course, we'd love to have her on in the future. Uh, again, make sure you listen to it it's next Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Where we'll be joined by Erin McDougal, MMA fighter in training, and she has been a great, um, you know, guest off the air, talking to her and keeping in contact with her and letting me know everything that's going on. So. She's been better than just uh, she's she's been the best of any guest that we've ever had or about to have in terms of always letting me know hey you know this is going on I can't right now I'm still you know interested and let's make this happen et cetera et cetera so love that about her sir and that should be some good stuff so uh, tune in again Tuesday night 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for JB this is DG of Pure Gold. Reminding you to always keep it PG. And, uh, you know, before we close out the uh, the show, let's uh, read just a couple of things I wanted to, uh, wanted to throw out here. Joe in Wallington. What's up, Joe? What's the name of your show? Uh, Pure Gold. Pure Gold? Yes, sir. I got two words for you. Pure gold. Hey, everyone. This is Brittany Don Brandon, Miss Arizona USA 2011. And Pure Gold is the best show on the radio. So make sure you tune in, check out the latest in entertainment, news, and sports. Good night, everyone. <laughs>